The Chinese government is accused of aggressively targeting Western democracies with disinformation and hostage diplomacy. From Global News, I'm Jeff Semple, and on my new podcast, China Rising, we'll separate fact from fiction and hear from accused spies, whistleblowers, and others caught in the political crossfire. As the pandemic rages across the world and incidents of anti-Asian racism rise, listen to China Rising for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. As a crime reporter, I get to know a lot of police investigators from a lot of different units, from sex crimes to guns and gangs, and of course, homicide. In this episode, one of those officers, a veteran investigator, shares behind-the-scenes details about some of the most high-profile cases I've covered, and opens up about the impact these cases have had on his own life. Yeah, I still suffer because of it. Um, the lost sleep that I can, uh, that I'll never get back, because of the the images that are ingrained in my soul. I've I've seen things as my cohorts have that、uh, the rest of society should never have to look at, and that's just、uh, part of the job that you have to to learn how to deal with that. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Today on Crime Beat, a special conversation with retired homicide detective Tom Barrow. Thanks so much for coming in. You're welcome, Nancy. So. People will know you. People who've listened to Crime Beat previously,、um, you've joined us for one of our episodes, and you're going to be on several other episodes in the future. But we want to give you people some of the background, some of the the stuff that they've always wanted to know、uh, from a homicide detective. And because you're retired, I feel like you can say things a little more freely than somebody who's <laughs> currently working. Sure. What was the reason why you became a police officer in the first place? To tell you the truth, I, I didn't. I didn't set off to to be a police officer. I actually wanted to be a dentist, if you can imagine that.、Um, and then、uh, in the、uh, in the late '80s,、uh, it was、uh, it was very competitive.、Um, I was going to school. I was doing my best, but、uh, it, the writing was on the wall. I wasn't going to be a doctor or a dentist. And、uh, I started looking for other career paths. And、uh, I just kind of fell naturally into the the,、uh, the police world. I had I had a lot of really good mentors, guys that、uh, maybe were a little younger than my dad, who、uh, who kept pushing me in that direction. And、uh, I was I was very fortunate. I got on at a at a very young age, and uh, uh, I was happy that I did. I,、uh, I finished my degree and、uh, and had a very rewarding and, and successful career. So, having your father be a police officer before you,、um, and he was involved in a lot of high-profile cases, was that a bit of an inspiration to you? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, it, it was very interesting work.、Um, I、uh, I always looked up to my father and his coworkers、uh, as a child and as a teenager. Looking up, they always seemed to be. Bigger and and did things better and and I was、uh, I I had that that awe about the profession and like I said I, it really wasn't where I was heading but、uh, as I got older it, it started to inspire me more and more and、uh, when I 
finally decided to take that turn, um, it, it was an easy fit because I knew I knew what the job was all about. I knew the the stresses and the strains that it puts on a relationship and a family, and I think I was well prepared for that aspect of it. And uh, uh, I took to it like uh, uh, like it was second nature. I think it's interesting that your dad was actually involved in some of the cases that were high profile when I was growing up as well, because and he was kind of on the cutting edge of a lot of new things. So I did want to ask you about that because he worked on the Kelly Cook case, which anybody who's listened to previous episodes knows there's a, a series of, that I did in season one of Crime Beat. Yes. Yeah. My dad... Uh my father was involved with investigative hypnosis. Um, not only was he a polygraphist, but uh, but he uh, was a, a, a hypnotist, and uh, not like the uh, the cruise ship variety. Um, there's a lot of value to being able to uh, relax to the point of being able to remember details of things that are in your in your memory and being able to bring that forward and uh, yeah he did some some really cutting edge stuff for the uh, the 1980s so I know a lot of our listeners will be wanting to know kind of a lot of the different things on how you did your job as a homicide detective but just before we get into that I thought it's an interesting fun fact to point out that I met you before I even fully became a journalist, like I had just graduated from high school and I was already accepted into broadcasting school, but I hadn't started yet. And I was volunteering for whoever would take me to try to get some experience. And at that time, I was a volunteer for Shaw TV. And I met you because you were a contestant in the Calgary Police Rodeo. Absolutely. Yeah. In 1994, I won my first all around buckle and uh, and you interviewed me and uh, somewhere in my archives I still have a copy of that I'm scared to even think about how bad that was because I hadn't even gone to school yet and I had no idea really that I would end up dealing with a lot of the officers that I interviewed that day Absolutely. Yeah, there there would have been a lot of us uh, some of the guys more senior to me uh, were uh, were major crimes investigators. Some of uh, of my rodeo mentors uh, uh, were also good police mentors. Uh, the Calgary Police Rodeo has a very uh, a very prominent place in in my heart. Uh, I was involved, boy, probably since uh, well, I met my wife at a rodeo, a police rodeo in 1991, and uh, I sat on the board until I think about 2007. And then met your favorite crime reporter in 94. Absolutely. So let's talk about how you balance your work life when you're a homicide detective with home life and, and how the two of them kind of meet in the middle and how your family deals with, you know, you being on call. And I know there's probably a reason why after 25 years you chose to retire because it can take a toll on you. Oh, yeah. Um, I think... I, I think the best way to answer that is I had the love of a good woman. I think it's really interesting because I think people have a mental picture of what a homicide detective would be like. And I think they picture, you know, this hard nosed, you know, guy who would never let anything make him feel emotions. But 
from my experience in the homicide detectives that I've met, you guys are kind of the opposite of that. And you guys are human. You're, you feel emotions. And I know when you talk about your family, it's an emotional thing. Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, uh, you, lo- you look at the characters that are on TV, and that's, you know, a nice way to think about it. But it really isn't. Uh, most of the, uh, the guys that I work closely with uh, were good family people. Um, you know, the, the uh, police service, police policing in general has a, uh, a history and a reputation for uh, marital breakdowns. But it seemed that a lot of the, the guys that I work with are, are, are lifers, right? They've, they're still on their, their first marriages and their first families. And that's, uh, I think that's a testament to who they are and their ability to not only do the work, but balance that that home life. And uh, you you really need a, a a partner at home who understands what the job is about and is willing to support you in it. Um, I was I was very blessed. Um, I still am, but uh, my wife understood the importance of the job. And when I would get the call at two o'clock in the morning and I'd be gone and sometimes she wouldn't see me for two or three days. I'd be, you know, sleeping in the utility room at the office or uh, if I did come home, it was to grab a two hour nap and then uh, a shower and a a clean suit and away I'd go again. So uh, I, uh, I always tried to make my kids events if they had a soccer game or if they had a, uh, um, a recital, a performance, um, my three daughters mean the world to me. Um, and I, I didn't want to miss it, but I also recognized the importance of the, uh, the work that I was chosen to do. You know, a lot of times for these episodes, I will talk to the primary investigator, including you uh, on some cases, but... I think it's also important to note that it's not just that investigator working on a specific file. So a lot of the episodes uh, that I've covered, probably most of them, you've touched in some capacity because you guys all work together. There's two teams at the Calgary Police Service Homicide Unit, and uh, you work very closely on a lot of the cases. Talk about the team effort that goes into this and, and what it's like to be a part of that team. Some of the best times when I was in the homicide unit were working as a team. In, in the boardroom outside the, the homicide offices, uh, we have a boardroom and we would come together and brainstorm and you're in there and everybody's got a task and we use something called the uh, major case management uh, triangle and you've got a, you've got a, a primary investigator um, on one tip of the, the triangle. And then you've got uh, your your file manager, and you've also got your your affiant on the other corners. But underneath there are, are field investigators, and and we all flow through those different responsibilities. Uh, you know, one time you get tasked to go and do neighborhood inquiries, the next time you're doing a video canvas, or you're working with the uh, Calgary Search and Rescue. It's really a team effort. Um, I know in your shows you 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 do talk to the the primary, but um, the, the primary is the is the the point of the spear. But the rest of us are right there with them, 
helping. Oftentimes, there's there's multiple homicides going on in a series or in a row. May, they may not be may be related, but um, like on a busy weekend, you can you can have five different events that require the homicide unit. You know, whether it's a, a shooting where somebody looks like they might uh, might die. Um, you might have a suspicious suicide that has to be looked at by the homicide unit. You know, everybody comes together and has a role. You get the primary and then everybody else is out doing stuff and you're juggling, you're putting different hats on all weekend long into the next week and, and away you go. And, and the guys all pull for each other. If you need help, you ask for it. I can't ever remember being told no. They just come together. And I know that you listen to a lot of the different episodes that we do, and some of these actually bring back memories for you because you were involved. And I remember uh, talking to you at one point, I believe at court, just dealing with the Alex Redita case. And that one really stood out in your mind as something um, yeah. because because you were there investigating. I was the, the first investigator on that scene. There were first responders there. Um, but because of the location, you, I think I think in the episode they talk about one of the guys. Detective Matt Demarino in the episode talks about the senior officer who came back to report what you had seen when you went to the scene. I've never seen anything like it. In this case, there was one detective who lived near the scene and instead of, you know, coming into the office, he just phoned in and said, I live near there, I'll stop at the scene, and I'll hook up with you guys later. And he did that. And this is a a 25-year guy with five years' experience in homicide. And um, he showed up a couple of hours later, and he was stuttering. He he wasn't speaking in complete sentences. He was, and it was weird for such a seasoned guy. And then he put that picture of Alex up in the TV in the boardroom and my jaw dropped like I, I had never seen anything like that before. That was me because of the location uh, and where I lived. Um, it was the, the scene was actually on my way into the office. So uh, oftentimes if somebody was was coming in and coming right by the, uh, the scene, we've sent an investigator out. Um, in that particular case, it was me. And when I walked in, I was the, the first investigator on scene. And uh, when I walked into that room, it, it floored me. I had never seen anything like that in my life other than in, in photographs of, of genocide-type photographs. And I took a picture and I sent it back to the primary, who was Matt, for the boardroom so that people would understand what, what I was seeing, what we were looking at. This wasn't a case of um, uh, a, a medical, like a, a, a like an it occurrence. A it, no, it, this this was something bigger and and more sinister than I had ever ever seen with a child in a family situation. I still suffer because of it. Um, a, the the lost sleep that I can 
that I'll never get back because of the, the images that are ingrained in my soul. Um, I've, I've seen things as my cohorts have that uh, the rest of society should never have to look at. And that's just uh, part of the job that you have to, to learn how to deal with that. And how do you deal with that? Is that part of something that you would kind of debrief with your wife at the end of the day, just so that you get that off your chest? Yeah, without, you know, I, I don't think I, I like to, I never like to bring home the, the details, the, you know, but being a, having somebody to talk to at the end of the day, um, having a good support network, having faith, it all helps you get through the day. When you listened to that episode, there was the conversation with Alex. Had you heard that audio previously? I, no, I had not. Um, so my my role, I wrote a lot of the initial warrants to bring the the written documentation back from BC. That was that was my role. So I did I did see some of the writings about what had happened to to Alex, but I'd never heard his voice. You were in a hospital, and why were you in a hospital? Because I was I got too sick. And how did you get too sick? What were you sick with? Do you know? My mom and dad were giving me the wrong stuff. They were giving you the wrong stuff. How do you know they were giving you the wrong stuff? Because that makes you sick. That makes you sick. And that makes that makes you barf. How did you feel when mm. you heard that? How to put that in words? Like, it's, um, you know, I had a front row seat to the whole the whole thing. I was there at search warrants. I was there when they were arrested. It, it, how in, you know, in this millennium, can, can parents be so short-sighted and so close-minded um, that they would do this to their child. It, uh, it, it was beyond reason. And they had been through it before. They, they had taken them to the brink of death once before and were educated. Okay, now things should be better. But the fact that they picked up, they hid, they did it again to them. Um, you know, I think I think the verdict that they they received is is a just verdict in this particular case. Are there other cases that really stand out in your mind that just you know that they kind of just haunt you to this day? The ones involving children. Um, you know, I, I dealt with a lot of uh, organized crime related, gang, drug related, and. It, those ones, you know, especially young people, are, are tough to take. But you know, 
a lot of them put themselves in that situation. But uh, when it when it involved innocent children, um, yeah, I, those ones those ones haunt you. They they stick with you. Um, you can never quite shake those those images, especially as a father of of three daughters myself. I uh, I can't imagine a parent um, losing a child, let alone somehow being involved in their murder. I know uh, having three daughters, and they were a little bit younger at the time that you were investigating the death of Brittany McInnes, but that had to have been a, a really tough one for you. Yeah, it was. It was my it was my first as a primary in the unit. This is a clip from the story of Brittany McInnes, the concrete angel. I just can't imagine the place where you're supposed to feel the safest in your home with the people who are supposed to make you safe doing something like this to you. Barrow said the autopsy made it clear Brittany had been murdered. The body speaks volumes in an autopsy like this. What had happened to her, um, the fight that, that she had, her fingernails were ripped, so she, she had DNA underneath her fingernails. Some of her fingernails were ripped off, so she had obviously cl- tried to claw her way to safety. She was, she was strangled. Um, the, the, uh, the belt from her robe was used as a ligature around her neck. Brittany had fought for her life. And there was more. The 17-year-old girl had been raped. I had three young daughters of my own at the time. They were a little younger than uh, Brittany and her sister. But um, as we went through trial, they're moving towards that age. And and now as I've retired and, and I have, well, I have my middle one is right in that that age group right now. And I, I look at her and she's, she's just, you know, so innocent and has her whole world in front of her. It's hard to imagine that, that, yeah, that somebody, a family member could do something like. No, it's okay. Just take a minute. It's like, and this is years later, and it's still like, I can tell that obviously it it does. It takes a toll on your life. And every time we're talking about one of these Mm -hmm. cases, it kind of just brings you right back. One of the questions that I'm actually curious about is when you're dealing with with a case like Brittany's and you have to deal with the accused, how do you maintain that professional investigator stance because you obviously see what he's done and what he's confessed to have done. Professional. You you need to maintain that professionalism and you go in there with an understanding that the end goal is a is a confession, is a conviction. It's it's putting this guy behind bars. Um, and your personal your personal feelings have to take a back seat because if you let them slip out, you're not going to do it right. You're gonna. It's. It, you're not going to get the end goal. 
I wonder if almost years later when we're talking about it, it's almost like you're more emotional about it now because you couldn't be emotional about it then. Some of them, absolutely. Some of the cases, uh, there's there's some that hit me. You know, probably the the best example was the uh, the Degroote, the the five young people that were killed uh, in Brentwood, and uh, that that one hit me at the time. I, I I had a very difficult time holding that one in probably because of the, the magnitude. It is a horrific tragedy that has rocked the University of Calgary and our entire city and left many asking why. Five young lives have been cut short in a mass stabbing at a house party in Brentwood, the worst in our city's history. The NewsHour's Nancy Hicks is live outside the home on Butler Crescent with the very latest. Nancy? The suspect, 22-year-old Matthew DeGrude, is still under watch at the Rocky View Hospital at this hour. He is now charged in the worst mass murder in the city's history. He is officially charged with five counts of first-degree murder. We have never seen five people killed by an individual uh, at one scene. DeGroot is the son of a 33-year veteran police officer and identified as the only suspect in the case. Again, that one was on my, my way in. I was the first um, investigator on scene relaying real-time information back to the, uh, to the boardroom uh, for the homicide investigators that were gathering there. So I was on scene. Two of the deceased had been, had been taken to the hospital in an effort to to save them. Um, and I was actually on the, uh, on the telephone with the medical examiner's investigator when I put it together that first we went to four and then she was going to check on the, on the fifth. And when she told me that that fifth, not realizing that there were three on the scene. Matthew DeGrood sat quietly, his hands and feet shackled as he appeared in person in court for the first time since he was charged with five counts of first-degree murder. The 22-year-old faced a packed courtroom. Emotional family and friends of the young people he's accused of killing watched him closely. Five people were murdered at a house party in Brentwood back on April 15th. Lawrence Hong, Josh Hunter, Katie Paris, Zachariah Rathwell, and Jordan Segura were all stabbed to death. And that is an, uh, a case that I'm actually working with the victims' families on right now. So that will be, um, you know, one of the series that we release on Crime Beat in the next little while. So for sure, we'll give more information about that case. But the impact and the ripple effect that that case has had, I mean, it, it stays till this day. Everybody who that case touched, the families, and just a devastating impact. So you've been retired for a couple of years now. Um, you actually would have just hit your 30th anniversary if you were still with CPS, but you retired a couple of years ago. But when you left, I know there was a couple of cases that you were working on tirelessly. What happened to those cases? Well, those files, uh, I did as much as I could. Um, and then it was handed off uh, to my teammates one of those cases is the death of a little girl in Calgary, and that's a case that you and I are working on an episode about uh, for a future Crime Beat episode. Baby Elizabeth Velasquez suffered two broken arms and two broken legs before she was murdered at just 14 months old. Homicide investigators revealed she died of asphyxia. 
how difficult is that to to walk away knowing that you've worked on it and you know you're very close to perhaps bringing somebody to justice in this case but you know you're retired there wasn't enough evidence to present at trial but i know and the courts also know uh, based on some other things that have transpired who was responsible for that baby's death now it it always remains an open file is there a hope though in in doing something in in kind of bringing that case to the forefront and talking to me for this podcast that perhaps that could lead to charges being laid in that case absolutely it, you never know who somebody has confessed to, that there may be evidence out there that just hasn't come forward yet. You can find answers to just about anything online, but what about those mysteries that can't seem to be solved? Spooky secrets which have stumped even the cleverest of clickers. Well, set the mouse aside because the myths have met their match in the Spotify original. Internet Urban Legends. Every Tuesday, evidence expert Louis Lane and skeptic Eleanor Barnes investigate the Internet's creepiest conundrums, covering conspiracy theories and combing through clues to separate hoax from haunt. Together, they tackle the terrors of Twitter, TikTok horror stories, paranormal YouTube videos, and every unsettling Internet tale in between. Each episode is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. Can the gruesome twosome solve these mysteries? Or will they remain internet urban legends? Wade through the weirdest stories on the web and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free only on Spotify. One of the techniques used by police in a lot of major crimes investigations in Canada is what's referred to as a Mr. Big Sting operation. I've talked about this tactic before in previous episodes of Crime Beat. You'll remember, this is the technique that was used in the Mika Jordan case and in Lisa Mitchell's case. Police officers create very realistic scenarios to try to get suspects to confess to undercover officers. There are strict rules police have to follow. In 2014, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that confessions extracted through Mr. Big police sting operations tend to produce unreliable confessions and are open to abuse. They are presumed inadmissible in court. I have been around since the, the start of the, uh, the, the formalized Mr. Big scenarios uh, here in the city of Calgary. And I've, I've kind of watched the, the development of it. And um, I really got to give our, our people credit. They've, they've been creative and, and they've really, they've stepped away from the, what is the traditional uh, Mr. Big and, and they get it in a different way. And, you know, I don't really want to talk about the technique specifically, but just that uh, every time we get a little bit more creative, there's another decision or roadblock that is put in our way. But um, I still see it as being a, a valuable tool and, and the guys and gals that are out there will do a, do a darn good job of figuring their way 
through those those investigative hurdles uh, in order to continue to use the uh, the technique or what evolves into a, a new technique. Your dad set the bar for thinking outside the box when it came to new investigative techniques. And over the past 30 years, since you first became an officer, a lot has changed from DNA evidence to the advent of social media. In your opinion, how has that affected police investigations? As I kind of made my way through both the organized crime murders and then into homicide, um, social media blew up, right? It was it was my space when we started. And then by the time I retired, uh, we had... Uh, many platforms and and an investigator needs to have such computer savvy now um, like I, I referenced my father and his era and if he could see the kind of investigations that we do today compared to the 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 grind work that they used to do the knocking on doors and talking to people um, Sometimes I think that's becoming a lost art. Uh, I, there's there's still value out there to doing that, but so much of our our investigation now goes through the computer. Even CCTV. Look at the value of the fact that there's cameras on almost every house, on every block, on every business. Like if you're going to do something, there's a good chance you're going to get caught on camera. Absolutely, and if it's not there. It's at a traffic camera leaving the area. It's at a, a, a convenience store that you passed by. And it, you're only limited to the scope that you open up and, and look. And, and that's where that team comes back in. You need resources. And, um, you know, a six, seven-man homicide team needs to be supported by the street personnel and, and detectives from other areas now. They, there's just so much work to be done um, in any serious event. One of the cases that stands out to me where investigators used pretty much every technique possible, from neighborhood inquiries and door knocking to gathering CCTV evidence to the use of multiple forensic experts and DNA evidence, is the case of five-year-old Nathan O'Brien and his grandparents, Alvin and Kathy Lickness. The Crown called Garland an obsessive and methodical planner who deliberately killed Nathan, Alvin and Kathy. Court heard the three individuals were violently removed from their beds, taken to the Garland farm and killed. Their bodies were burned in a large burn barrel with only tiny fragments of flesh left for police to discover. I still remember the day that uh, the officer who obtained the video in the neighborhood and was, was going through the video found the truck that was linked to that. And the, the power that that had uh, to, to further the investigation and, and you know, the, the energy that it created with, within the group when we're all trying to pull in that direction and, and now we've got, we've got something tangible, something that we can link to that, that homicide scene. It was, it's very powerful. That case specifically had more officers involved and more manpower than it, it probably set a, a record. Um, how much does that case stand out to you in your career? The investigators on that, I, I tip my hat to them 
every time I see them, you know, the lead, the two leads on that did an amazing job. But you're absolutely right as, as to how many people rallied for that that event. Um, it would really be interesting to count the number of officers that submitted their notes in some way, shape, or form on that that homicide. It would be hundreds and maybe even a thousand people um, would have touched that in some respect. Like there was so much done for that file. And likely just so much emotion. I mean, I think everyone, myself included, we were, everyone was very emotionally invested because, you know, for some time it remained an amber alert. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it comes back to children. Um, you know, I, I, the grandparents, I, you know, my heart breaks for them. I, I get it. But add a child into it and the Amber Alert and the, the, you know, the not knowing where these people are, fearing the worst but hoping for the best and then trying to piece it together. Um, anytime you have a child, you look at, uh, you look at all the, the, the child murders that have happened over the course of 10, 15, 30 years, you look at each and every one of them, they're, they leave a hole in the, the, the soul of the city, right? You, you've got, uh, you know, we have all have children somewhere in our lives uh, and, and you want to keep them safe. I know earlier you talked about that these cases always stick with you. So years later, you know, you're retired, but how do you, like, because I don't think those memories go away. How do you still deal with that? Hmm, that's a, that's a good question. I, uh, I suffer from sleep deprivation. Um, I cannot remember the last time I slept past 5.30 in the morning. Even if I was to stay up till 3 a.m., I wake up. I just, I, there's something in my, my rhythm that I don't sleep. My wife gets annoyed because <laughs> I get up and, and, you know, I'm fortunate that I, I can work on, on my own schedule and I, I usually start quite early in the day. And, but weekends included, I'm, I'm up. Uh, I, I, I get up mostly because I don't like the images that go through my mind. Um, you, it, it kind of flows to that, that low point, um, looking for, for a way out, I guess. So I get up and, and just do something else to, to get my mind away from it. I don't, in my waking hours, I don't, I don't stew about it. I don't think about it, but if I'm, if I'm laying there. Uh, that's where my mind goes, and um, that's probably the disease. Uh, and like you say, I think a lot of people deal with it, um, diagnosed or undiagnosed. Um, I don't, I don't think that it's anything that I can't handle by myself or with the the help of my family. But it uh, it certainly makes me tired in the in the evening. It's tough to get through a. a a West Coast hockey game these days. Yeah, there's a balance to it. Uh, I, um, you know, although I retired, uh, I continue to work. Uh, uh, so uh, there's there's lots to 
to stay focused on outside of letting the demons crawl into your head. And I think once an investigator, probably always an investigator. So even though you're retired, you're still working full time and in a different capacity, though, as an investigator. Just tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, I've been doing uh, corporate security investigations for a financial institution for the last couple of years. Uh, I do some private investigative work. Uh, I do some legwork for for lawyers that uh, that require uh, my expertise. Um, I really enjoy the the death investigation. Still, it's you know I kind of get drawn back to it because it's uh, is a skill set that uh, not a lot of of people have. Um, you know, once you've you've been through the homicide uh, world for for a number of years, there's a skill set that you have and an understanding of what it takes to investigate a uh, a, a serious event such as a like an occupational health death or a, a, an accident uh, death. Um, and I do enjoy adding my expertise to those investigations. We'll be having you back to talk about um, several high profile cases that you were a part of and hugely instrumental in. So thank you so much. I look forward to it. Thank you to Tom Barrow for coming in and being so open and sharing some special insight into these cases and giving us a look at the life of a homicide detective. And thank you for listening. If this is your first time checking out Crime Beat, please take the time to listen to the other stories I've shared, including the ones I've shared in this episode. And make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss the upcoming episodes Tom and I discussed. I would love to have you give our show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode, and thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I also want to thank editor Craig Jaron and our production assistant Ryan Robinson for their work on this episode. You can reach me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I would love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at Nancy.Hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time. A gunman on the loose in a quiet coastal town. By morning, 22 people were dead. I'm Sarah Ritchie. I live in Halifax, and I'm a reporter for Global News. On my new podcast, 13 Hours, Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, we'll examine every hour of this tragedy to try and piece together what happened and what could have been done to prevent it. You can listen to 13 Hours, Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.